Episode 36, 36 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, the podcast that has had a couple more episodes now than I've had birthdays. It's a great place, in my humble opinion, to hear about philosophy, theology, social issues and other things that happen to interest me. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Did you know that Alvin Plantinga recently retired. He did. He retired from his post as the John O'Brien Professor of Philosophy at the University of Notre Dame, or Notre Dame, if you actually come from Indiana, or Notre Dame, if you don't. Alvin Plantinga was my first serious introduction to reading philosophy. Now, this goes back to the mid, mid to late 1990s, more than, no, the late 1990s, really, fairly late, before I even started my undergrad degrees in theology. And my friend Matt, who now runs the M&M blog with his wife Madeline, was reading Plantinga and actually did his master's thesis on Plantinga's work. So I got interested in Plantinga's work and I got his book, God, Freedom and Evil, out of the library. Now as someone who had never encountered analytic philosophy of religion before, I was blown away when I first read this. It was unlike anything that I had ever read. Even now, years later, after having read quite a lot of philosophy and having done a PhD in philosophy, Plantinga's work still, for me, stands out apart from most of what's there in the field in a class all of his own. I don't think many people familiar with philosophy of religion would consider it an exaggeration at all to say that Alvin Plantinga single-handedly made more of an impact on that field of study than any other person in the late 20th century. He played a key role in a movement in analytical philosophy that reversed the status of religious belief. In the, I guess, early to mid-20th century, you could have been forgiven for thinking that academic philosophy in general was an anti-religious field of study. Not universally, but in general. Most work on philosophy of religion was very sceptical, and the stance that would have been regarded as the mature one would be to regard religion as something relegated to the museum of things debunked by serious thought. The problem of evil was widely regarded to be fairly decisive. Religion was thought of in philosophy, and philosophy of religion in particular, as something devoid of evidence, and whatever function a religious belief might serve was certainly not one that had any real truth value. Now, I'm overstating if I suggest that this was pretty much universally held, but it was very widely held. It was a dominant view. Thanks to the work of a number of excellent philosophers, but the work of Alvin Plantinga more than most, this is most definitely not the case now in philosophy of religion. The mainstream field of serious philosophy of religion is now dominated by religious believers rather than by skeptics, and no one can go to print making the assumptions about religious beliefs that might once have been acceptable in that field. In fact, no responsible or respectable publishing house could get away with publishing it without seriously tarnishing its reputation, and let's face it, Prometheus Books has nothing to lose anyway. The philosophical defense of religious belief is very much a respectable discipline today, 
And Alvin Plantinga has had a major role in making this the case. For that reason, and to mark his retirement, I thought it would be nice to offer my own meagre contribution. A nice idea to use this episode to look at one of the major contributions that Plantinga has made to philosophy of religion. The subject area here is really twofold because it includes both philosophy of religion and epistemology, that is the study of knowledge, how we get knowledge, the right and wrong way of arriving at beliefs. The episode is hopefully a little little more interesting than its rather mundane sounding name. It's called Plantinga and Properly Basic Beliefs. Now with that rather wordy introduction now in the past, let's get started. Alvin Plantinga has made several really important contributions to philosophy of religion and also to epistemology and metaphysics. He is regarded as the one to first definitively debunk the logical problem of evil. He has made major contributions to the the development of the concept of epistemic warrant. He's given us fascinating arguments about the relationship between naturalism and epistemic reliability. In previous episodes uh, of this podcast, episodes 12 and 13, I looked at these last two things. Now, another contribution, the one that I'm going to be talking about today, is the idea of a properly basic belief and whether or not any religious beliefs, in particular belief in God, might count as properly basic beliefs. So first, I will sketch the backdrop against which Plantinga was writing when he spelled out his view. Now, that backdrop is best described as theological evidentialism. A large number of thinkers, including W.K. Clifford, Bertrand Russell, and the earlier Anthony Flew, have said that belief in God has a problem. It is, and here the terminology tends to diverge a bit, it's not always the same, but the general idea is that belief in God is irrational or unreasonable or unwarranted, improper, indefensible, or something else equally bad, all because belief in God is not accompanied by or is not the result of exposure to sufficient evidence. That's theological evidentialism. Bertrand Russell was famously asked what he would say to God if one day after he died, he found out that he was wrong and was brought before God. And his memorable reply was, I'd say not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. After all, Russell said, our duty is to, and I quote, give to any hypothesis which is worth your while to consider just that degree of credence which the evidence warrants, end quote. In fact, W.K. Clifford went further and he told the world that, and I quote, and this is a very famous saying of his, It is wrong always, everywhere, and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. Context makes it clear that he doesn't just mean it's dysfunctional, but it's really an offense against morality. It violates the ethics of belief. So observing the way that philosophers have stated their objections to belief in God in relation to the question of evidence, Plantinga summed up the evidentialist evidentialist, objection to belief in God roughly like this. Firstly, it is irrational or unreasonable to accept theistic belief, that is belief in God, in the absence of sufficient evidence or reasons. Secondly, there is no 
evidence, or at any rate not sufficient evidence for the proposition that God exists. Now what follows from these two claims is pretty straightforward. It results in the conclusion that it's irrational or unreasonable or just wrong in some important way to adopt theistic belief, to believe in God. Now one perfectly sensible way to attempt to rebut this objection, and I think a pretty good way to rebut this objection, is to simply reject the second premise, the premise that says that there's no evidence or insufficient evidence for the proposition that God exists. The fact is that there are plenty of very serious works that present what their authors take to be precisely this sort of evidence. Uh, Plantinga notes that the second premise here is, and he puts it mildly, a strong claim. Yeah, it is rather strong. He asks the question that many of us, including myself, would ask. He says, and I quote, What about the various arguments that have been proposed for the existence of God? The traditional cosmological and teleological arguments, for example. What about the versions of the moral argument as developed, for example, by A.E. Taylor and more recently by Robert Adams? What about the broadly inductive or probabilistic arguments developed by F.R. Tennant, C.S. Lewis, E.L. Mescal, Basil Mitchell, Richard Swinburne, and others? What about the ontological argument in its contemporary versions? Do none of these provide evidence? End quote. Well, those are good questions. Now, planting is not talking about definitive proof, but merely evidence. Today, we could think of a number of other examples that can be referred to. The various arguments of people like William Lane Craig or the historical apologetics of Michael Lycona or others. But the point is the same. Who says there's not enough evidence? Many, and perhaps even most, religious believers think that they are well within their right to simply reject this premise and hence the entire objection collapses. Now we could just walk away from the objection there, but this is not where Plantinga, Plantinga, I'm never sure if it's Plantinga or Plantinga, so I kind of vacillate between the two. This is not where Plantinga focused his response to the evidentialist objection. And in a way, the fact that this approach might, to some at least, have been so unexpected, people didn't really expect anyone to reply the way that Plantinga did, and the fact that his argument was so unexpected actually gives it some of its uniqueness. Plantinga's focus is not on whether or not there is evidence for the existence of God. Now, he argues elsewhere that there is evidence for the existence of God. Here's a couple of arguments for that effect. I'm not interested in those here. Plantinga denied the first premise, that it is always irrational, unreasonable, or in some way wrong to hold a belief without sufficient evidence for that belief. That, even today, shocks some people when they are first introduced to Plantinga's philosophy. Imagine believing something when there's not enough evidence to justify the belief. How bizarre! Some people might initially think, how could you even doubt a thing like that? You know, that you need evidence in order to justify believing. Who would doubt that? Well, Plantinga would evidently. The position on belief in God that Plantinga came to formulate has been dubbed Reformed Epistemology because of the way that he draws on the Reformed theological tradition. The first thing to realize when coming to grips with this claim is that not everything that is rightly believed is believed on the basis of evidence or inference of the kind that is offered by the various arguments for the existence of God. Some examples that Plantinga uses are, we'll first take the claim that 2 plus 3 equals 5. Okay, just think of that claim for a few seconds. Now imagine two people, 
who are thinking about that claim, that 2 plus 3 equals 5. One of them believes that this claim is true because he immediately sees that it's true, as you probably do as well. The other person believes that this claim is true because he used a computer to calculate that 2 plus 3 equals 5. And that computer has a proven track record of getting things right. He has checked the historical records and seen that this is the case. So he draws the inference now, after considering these things, that it is likely to be right in this case, and he infers that it's likely to be the case that 2 plus 3 equals 5. So you've got two people who arrive at the belief that 2 plus 3 equals 5. Now, none of us thinks, or at least I hope none of us thinks, that the second person is epistemically, that is, as far as his belief formation process goes, that he's doing things better than the first guy. He's not. Yeah, the first guy's fine. We, we see the way that he forms this belief. It's the way that we form it too. And we don't think that this, the, the process gone through by the second guy is necessary at all. None of us thinks that. Take a second person who is walking around outside and he sees some birds flying around the tower. And so he believes that they are there. He forms that belief immediately. And take a second person who forms that same belief that there are these birds flying around there. But he believes it because a very trustworthy guidebook tells him that there are birds that fly around the tower. And we don't think that the second person is epistemically more praiseworthy because he's you know, studied the trustworthiness of this guidebook and looked at what the guidebook says and then inferred that there must be birds there. We don't think that he's better off, epistemically speaking. Or take the example of a man believing that his wife exists on the basis of a kind of carefully spelled out analogical argument, like the one that might be used to argue for the existence of other minds. We kind of think that's a bit weird, don't we? According to the perspective called reformed epistemology, we can think of belief in God a bit like the way that we think about these cases. Sure, you could believe on the basis of inference like people who, in these examples, depend on computers and the reliable history of those computers, on guidebooks and the reliability of their author, and arguments for the existence of other minds. But you don't have to. And it's by no means epistemically superior to believe in God that way. To think that it is superior is to adopt a perverse approach to knowledge. That's what Plantinger calls it. He says, that's just perverse. You, you shouldn't think that way about knowledge. But how do we formulate the principle at work here in, in a defensible way? What exactly, if anything, is the criticism of evidentialism that we see going on in these examples? Well, we need to sketch some background. Evidentialism is part of a wider epistemological outlook that Plantinger calls classical foundationalism. Now, foundationalism on its own is a view according to which there are generally two sorts of beliefs – some beliefs, most of them actually, are held on the base, basis of evidence. That is, that we hold these beliefs on the basis of, and they are inferred from, other beliefs that we hold. But this can't possibly be the case for all of our beliefs. In foundationalism, while many beliefs are based on evidence, they're based on other beliefs, there is a kind of belief that is not a foundational or a basic belief. Aristotle gave the classic rationale for this in his work called Posterior Analysis. If knowledge 
all knowledge is inferential, that is, a belief called B1 must be inferred from other beliefs, such as B2, then we've got to ask how B2 is justified. Now, if all knowledge is inferential, then B2 must be inferred from B3, which in turn is inferred from B4, and so on, forever and ever, or ad infinitum, as we say. But surely this is impossible, because it would require that in order for me to hold any justified beliefs, I would have to hold to an infinite number of justifying beliefs for that belief, which is impossible. And so there has to be a certain kind of basic belief, a belief that we call basic, a belief that is not inferred from other beliefs. These basic beliefs are foundational, serving as the basis of other beliefs that we hold, but which are not themselves held on the basis of other beliefs. So according to foundationalism, Plantinga says, every proposition is either in the foundations, it's either basic, or it's believed on the evidential basis of other propositions. That's foundationalism. And Plantinga accepts foundationalism. He, He says so. He says it's trivially true, and everyone should accept this. However, the classical foundationalist, somebody who embraces evidentialism, goes an extra step. Classical foundationalism strictly limits the type of belief that can be thought of as properly basic. In order to be held as properly basic, the classical foundationalist says that a belief, a proposition, must be self-evident or incorrigible, that is, incapable of being corrected or evident to the five senses. And we've got to be careful with the last of these conditions because senses can be tricked, of course. Perhaps instead of saying that something like, there is a tree over there, can be a properly basic belief because that involves data gained via the senses. Maybe the basic belief involves saying something like, it seems to me that there is a tree over there. Okay, so that's the basic belief. Because you can be mistaken about whether there really is a tree over there, but it's pretty unlikely that you're mistaken about whether or not it seems to you that there is a tree over there. So that's a basic belief. But there's a fairly simple and rather cute, I think, objection to evidentialism that is now available. Take the evidentialist claim. It is irrational or unreasonable to accept any belief in the absence of sufficient evidence or reasons. Now ask yourself, is that belief inferred from evidence? No. It's not like you've sat down and examined evidence and you know formed beliefs based on that evidence and then inferred this belief from you know, other beliefs. No, you didn't gain this belief that way. If it's not inferred from other propositions, then it must be basic. But is it basic? It's certainly not self-evident. It's not encourageable or evident to the senses. So it's not basic. So it's, it's not gained on the basis of evidence. You don't infer this belief from other beliefs. And it's not a basic belief. So the irony is that if you accept this evidentialist belief, then you have to, according to the belief itself, reject this evidentialist belief. So it's it's a self-defeating proposition. However, more to the point here, Plantinga observes, if classical foundationalism is allowed to rigorously govern the way that we assess all beliefs everywhere held by everyone, then, and I quote, enormous quantities of what we all in fact believe are irrational. One crucial lesson to be learned from the development of modern philosophy 
Descartes through Hume, roughly, is just this. Relative to propositions that are self-evident and incorrigible, my comment, that is, basic beliefs, most of the beliefs that form the stock and trade of ordinary everyday life are not probable. At any rate, there is no reason to think that they are probable. Consider all those propositions that entail, say, that there are enduring physical objects, or that there are persons distinct from myself, or that the world has existed for more than five minutes. None of these propositions, I think, is more probable than not with respect to what is self-evident or incorrigible for me. At any rate, no one has given good reasons to think any of them is. End quote. You see what he's saying? He's saying when it comes to inferring things from basic beliefs, a whole bunch of beliefs that we all believe that we are rational to hold are no longer rational to hold, and that just seems enormously counterintuitive. And even when we move to more modern forms of foundationalism and we add to the foundations those beliefs that are gained via the senses that I mentioned earlier, we're still in trouble. He says, and I quote, Then propositions entailing the existence of material objects will of course be probable with respect to the foundations because they are included therein. But the same cannot be said either for propositions about the past or for propositions entailing the existence of persons distinct from myself. As before, these will not be probable with respect to what is properly basic. End quote. And so you can't believe in other minds. You know, you can't believe that there are other conscious, sentient beings out there. You can't believe in the events of the past. But this is this is clearly clearly an unreasonable constraint on what beliefs are okay and on the ones that we have to deem irrational or unacceptable. Of course we're justified in holding beliefs about the past based on memory, for example. Of course we don't judge a person who believes that other people exist as being irrational. So classical foundationalism must have gotten something wrong. The limits on what might count as a properly basic belief in the classical foundationalist model needed to be improved upon. That's what Plantinga recognized. Before moving on to the question of whether or not belief in God might be a properly basic belief, given a more defensible understanding of basic beliefs, I should first introduce a way in which Plantinga explained that basic beliefs, although they're not held on the basis of inference, are by no means groundless or arbitrary. Think of beliefs like, I can experience seeing a tree over there, or I had breakfast this morning. Now, while you don't infer these beliefs from other beliefs, they're they're clearly not groundless. Instead, they're formed when you have certain experiences. They're formed when you are in the right circumstances, in other words, like perceiving a tree or experiencing having a memory. Those are the kind of circumstances that I have in mind. Thinking of the tree example, to use the kind of language held by uh, the well-known epistemologist Roderick Chisholm, I form the belief that there's a tree over there because I'm being appeared to greenly, or perhaps I'm being appeared to treely. Now, those are the experiences I'm having. That, that Those are the circumstances that I'm in. The circumstances of being appeared to treely. That experience plays a crucial role in my forming that belief. That experience justifies me believing this way. So it's not groundless, this belief, even though it's not a belief that I infer from other beliefs. Okay. So what then would it take for any beliefs about God to be properly called basic? 
Well, perhaps another way of approaching that question is, as Plantinga does, consider some of the ways that theologians and Plantinga himself have said that people have experiences that result in the belief that God exists. And then ask if they look like beliefs held as basic beliefs. Okay, so planting a notes, and I quote, When the reformers claim that this belief, that is, belief in God, is properly basic, they do not mean to say, of course, that there are no justifying circumstances for it, or that it is in that sense groundless or gratuitous. Quite the contrary. Calvin holds that God, quote, reveals and daily discloses himself to the whole workmanship of the universe, end quote, and the divine art, quote, reveals itself in the innumerable and yet distinct and well-ordered variety of the heavenly host, end quote. God has so created us that we have a tendency or a disposition to see his hand in the world about us. More precisely, there is in us a disposition to believe propositions of the sort, this flower was created by God, or this vast and intricate universe was created by God. When we contemplate the flower, or behold the starry heavens, or think about the vast reaches of the universe. End quote. Now, not everyone agrees with the way that Plantinga reads Calvin, but that doesn't matter in the least. If Calvin didn't believe it, well, Plantinga does believe it, and he has spelled it out, so we don't need Calvin to do it for us. Plantinga saw in Calvin and in the New Testament the view that we are created in such a way that when we are exposed to the right stimulus, namely the world around us, we function properly by believing certain things about God, and hence by believing in God himself. Plantinga goes on, and I quote, Calvin recognizes, at least implicitly, that other sorts of conditions may trigger this disposition. Upon reading the Bible, one may be impressed with a deep sense that God is speaking to him. Upon having done what I know is a cheap or wrong or wicked thing, no, I misquoted him, upon having done what I know is cheap or wrong or wicked, I may feel guilty in God's sight and form the belief God disapproves of what I've done. Upon confession and repentance, I may feel forgiven, forming the belief that God forgives me for what I've done. A person in grave danger may turn to God, asking for his protection and help, and of course he or she then forms the belief that God is indeed able to hear and help if he sees fit. When life is sweet and satisfying, a spontaneous sense of gratitude may well up within the soul. Someone in this condition may thank and praise the Lord for his goodness, and will, of course, form the accompanying belief that indeed the Lord is to be thanked and praised, end quote. So there are, Plantinga says, many conditions, many sets of circumstances that bring it about that people form belief in God. You'll notice, however, that the sorts of beliefs just discussed are not the plain old belief that there is a God. No, they're beliefs like, God is speaking to me. God has created all this. God disapproves of what I have done. God forgives me. Or God is to be thanked and praised. But even though none of these is the simple belief that there is a God, any one of these beliefs clearly implies that God exists. I actually wrote a blog on this minor issue back in March 2008 where I incorporated an example from the story The Little Prince. The blog entry was called what the little prince can teach some philosophers and some normal people too. 
I'll quote here the section of the book that I quoted there, quoting from The Little Prince. Grown-ups love figures. When you tell them that you have made a new friend, they never say to you, what does his voice sound like? What games does he love best? Does he collect butterflies? Instead, they demand, how old is he? How many brothers and sisters does he have? How much does he weigh? How much money does his father make? Only from these figures do they think that they have learned anything about him. If you were to say to the grown-ups, I saw a beautiful house made of rosy brick with geraniums in the windows and doves on the roof, they would not be able to get any idea of the house at all. You would have to say to them, I saw a house that cost £4,000. Then they would exclaim, Oh, what a pretty house that is. Just so you might say to them, say to them, the proof that the little prince existed is that he was a charm that he was charming, that he laughed and that he was looking for a sheep. If anybody wants a sheep, then that is proof that he exists. And what good would it do to tell them that? They'd shrug their shoulders and treat you like a child. But if you said to them the planet he came from is asteroid B612, then they would be convinced and leave you in peace from their questions. They are like that. One must not hold it against them. Children should always show great forbearance towards grown-up people. But certainly for us who understand life, figures are a matter of indifference. I should have liked to begin this story in the fashion of the fairy tales. I should have liked to say, Once upon a time there was a little prince who lived on a planet that was scarcely any bigger than himself, and who had need of a friend. To those who understand life, that would have given a much greater air of truth to my story. For I do not want anyone to read my book carelessly. I have suffered too much grief in setting down these memories. Six years have passed since my friend went away from me with his sheep. If I try to describe him here, it is to make sure that I shall not forget him. To forget a friend is sad. Not everyone has a friend, and if I forget him, I may become like the grown-ups who are no longer interested in anything but figures. End quote from The Little Prince. Here's what I said in that blog after I quoted this. I'll reproduce it here because it's so closely relevant to this part of Plantinga's discussion. I said, to quote myself, Christians believe, or at least I hope I'm not the only one who believes this, that in some really important way we know God and that God has, to some extent, made himself known to us. Take a philosophically unsophisticated person to whom God has personally made himself known as loving and forgiving and so forth. Given that God really has done so, what kind of objection is it to say to such a person, but how can this have happened when we don't even have any hard evidence that God exists? In these circumstances, that God is loving and forgiving and so forth is evidence that he exists because you can't be loving and forgiving or anything else unless you exist. End quote from myself. So, if the God that Plantinger believes in exists, then either belief in God is properly basic, or else some beliefs that obviously entail the existence of God are properly basic. If it's true that in the right conditions, belief in God can be properly basic, then people who believe in God under those circumstances are perfectly rational to believe in God. Now you might say to such people, well, your declarations about the way that you know God don't convince me that God exists, but then you'd be missing the point. 
This is not an argument for God's existence. This is an argument of how, if God exists, or rather it's an, it's an account of how, if God exists, it would be rational to believe in God without having any handy evidence for God's existence. Okay? Now, to deflect one possible misunderstanding at this point, let me just add this. I briefly outlined this account of knowing of God's existence to somebody online once, perhaps not doing a very good job of it. It was some years ago, and I'd really just become familiar with it myself. And his reply was, oh, so I see, it's an argument for mysticism. No, look, it's not an argument for mysticism. Now, could a mystical encounter with God, say a divine apparition or an altered state of consciousness, bring about properly basic belief in God? Yeah, I suppose it could. But that's not at all required for the type of experiences that I'm talking about. Okay, Think of the way that, I don't know, think of the way a mood ring works. In the presence of a certain temperature, it works as it should by turning a certain color. It's functioning properly and producing that color. Okay, Think of a metal detector. In the presence of metal, when it functions properly, it makes a beeping noise of a certain kind. Okay, A sonar, a barometer, they detect things under the right conditions, all as part of their normal everyday function, that is when they are functioning properly. The, the analogies are not perfect, I don't claim that they are, but they show at least that I'm not talking about beliefs that might arise and to be basic under unusual or special states or conditions like mystical experiences, you know, hearing voices and seeing visions. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our belief-forming faculties. Functioning properly under fairly normal conditions and entertaining the hypothesis that believing in God is part of that proper function. Notice that it's possible to argue against the believer and say that belief in God is not basic. You can do that. I'm not not making this position unfalsifiable. You just can't argue that it's not so because theism lacks evidence. What you'd have to be prepared to argue is that it's false that God has made us in such a way that beliefs are formed this way. Or you can argue that it's false that there is a God who made us in this way. You'd have to come up with strong defeaters for this theistic belief in order to argue that this belief cannot be or is not properly basic. Notice too that this does not, as some skeptics might allege, reverse the burden of proof when it comes to the question of God's existence because the theist is not trying to prove anything here. He's not saying, look, see, God exists. The one who has a burden of proof, if anyone does, is someone who wants to convince the theist that his belief is not formed in a way that allows it to be basic. Someone who has perceptions of the world, that is pretty much all of us, someone like that doesn't have any burden to prove to anyone that the simple beliefs that he gains from these perceptions are defensively held. He doesn't have to prove that to you. If, however, someone comes along who thinks that this fellow's simple beliefs gained via perception are not defensively held or are not really basic, then he's going to have to stump up with some persuasive arguments if he wants the perceiver to believe him. Now, of course, not everyone in the world is a theist on a second-order level. Don't worry terribly much about what this means. It basically means that some people don't take themselves to believe that God exists. Okay, so theism is not universal. Well, how could this be? You know, if 
if we are made in such a way that we form this belief that God exists, why doesn't everyone believe? Well, very little follows from the fact that not everyone believes because Plantinga's account does not require that everyone hold theism as properly basic or that everyone be a theist at all. All kinds of factors could stop us from holding what would otherwise be a properly basic belief. Um, I mean, you could probably think of dozens, well, maybe not dozens, but plenty of them, but I can think of mental illness, psychological conditions, perceptual weaknesses, maybe we're blind, physical disabilities and so on. In Plantinga's variety of theism, if, if his variety of theism is true, then a major candidate for such a hindrance here is sin. That's the one he speaks of. Speaking of and endorsing Calvin's explanation of the role of human sinfulness in this process, Plantinga says, and I quote, Calvin's claim then is that God has created us in such a way that we have a strong tendency or inclination toward belief in him. This tendency has been in part overlaid or suppressed by sin. Were it not for the existence of sin in the world, human beings would believe in God to the same degree and with the same natural spontaneity that we believe in the existence of other persons, an external world, or the past. This is the natural human conditions. It is because, sorry, human condition. It is because of our presently unnatural, sinful condition that many of us find belief in God difficult or absurd. The fact is, Calvin thinks, one who does not believe in God is in an epistemically substandard position, rather like the man who does not believe that his wife exists or thinks that she is a cleverly constructed robot and has no thoughts, feelings, or consciousness. End quote. In other words, this account of belief in God being basic under normal circumstances doesn't negate the possibility that we can experience noetic dysfunction, that is, dysfunction with regard to what we know, or epistemic dysfunction, that is, something could go wrong with the way that we form beliefs, and we might not form them as we ought, or would, under proper or normal or healthy circumstances, okay? Okay, so, now we've got a rough and ready outline of planting as case for belief in God being a basic belief. There are two basic objections, two main objections that present themselves, one more main than the other. Uh, these objections have been articulated by a number of people. The first objection is that this reformed epistemology, as it has become known, really commits a person to fideism. Now, you might not think that's really a criticism, especially not if you think highly of fideism, but Plantinga doesn't accept fideism. I don't accept fideism, and for that matter, I don't know anyone who does, so it's got to be crazy. right? Fideism is and this is Plantinga's definition, it is the exclusive or basic reliance upon faith alone accompanied by a consequent disparagement of reason and utilized especially in the pursuit of philosophical or religious truth. The fideist therefore urges reliance on faith rather than reason in matters philosophical and religious and therefore may go on to disparage the claims of reason or the place, the proper place of reason. Fideism is perhaps best summed up in a fairly extreme form in that widespread misrepresentation of Tertullian, the early Latin church father who was alleged to have said, but who didn't actually say, 
I believe because it is absurd. <clears throat> now, in fideism, it's perhaps something of a virtue to believe against the odds or to believe things that seem outrageous to reason. The more willing one is to snub reason, the greater her faith must be, which is the prime virtue in fideism. Now, the charge might be leveled against Reformed epistemology that it is some kind of fideism because it advocates you know, the idea that you can believe things, some things anyway, without evidence. And, you know, people associate evidence with reason. But, you know, evidence isn't the only thing associated with reason. Properly basic beliefs about simple mathematical equations, um, beliefs generated by perception or beliefs about the past based on memory, for example, these aren't based on evidence, but it's hard to see how they could be thought of as contrary to reason or somehow devoid of reason. So it's not true that basic beliefs in themselves indicate a commitment to fideism or to the belittling of reason. Now, of course, if someone were to provide a really, really good reason for not believing that something is true or a basic belief, they provide defeaters, in other words, defeaters that are stronger than the force of the factors that would make the belief basic. So they basically show you that reason indicates that you should give up a belief. But we just go on believing it anyway, denouncing reason and clinging to our beliefs in the vain belief that it demonstrates our loyalty or the purity of our faith. Then yes, fideism is a term that would come to mind. But that's not what Plantinga is advocating. So fideism doesn't apply at all here. This leads me to the second and by far the more popular objection to reformed epistemology, certainly the one that gets the most coverage. If what Plantinga describes in regards to belief in God being properly basic is said to be an acceptable way to think about basic beliefs, then can't just anyone get in on the game? Can't people just have any belief and say that it's a properly basic belief? Even crazy beliefs? I mean, here's a really well-known, well, fairly well-known in this field of study anyway, example. It's referred to as the Great Pumpkin Objection. And one proponent of this argument has been atheist Michael Martin, but there have been others as well. In the comic strip Peanuts, in case you don't know, the character Linus believes that there exists something called the Great Pumpkin, who rises from the pumpkin patch every Halloween and rewards good children with presents. Now, if Christians get to think that belief in their God can be properly basic, then why couldn't a person think that his belief in the Great Pumpkin is properly basic? And so, you know, claim the right to believe it, even though he cannot produce evidence for the belief's truth. That's the Great Pumpkin objection. Well, in spite of the widespread acclaim that this objection gets, it's actually trivially easy to show what's wrong with the objection. Here's the response to the, to the Great Pumpkin objection. Remember that properly basic beliefs are not groundless. They're brought about in the appropriate way by being in the right circumstances and functioning properly. So when you are in the circumstances of being appeared to Treely, you form the belief in a tree, you know, and your, your belief-forming structures are working properly. When you are having past memories of eating eggs, you form the belief that you ate eggs. Yes, if the circumstances you're in are such 
that the Great Pumpkin exists. So he really does exist. And if the circumstances that you're in are such that the Great Pumpkin has created us in such a way that that when we function properly, we believe in him, then sure, when we're in those circumstances and we form the belief that the Great Pumpkin exists, then that belief would be warranted. And yes, it can be a basic belief. But so what? Why is that even remotely important? The objection was an attempt to show that Plantinga's understanding of theism as a properly basic belief can be reduced to something absurd, but the objection does no such thing. Listen, Plantinga's explanation of properly basic beliefs was never intended to show that his version of theism is true. It doesn't show that. All it shows is that if the God that he believes in does exist, then there is a defensible account of how belief in this God can be properly basic. But likewise, if it were true that the great pumpkin existed, and if the way that the great pumpkin interacts with creation provides us an account of how pumpkinism can be properly basic, then fine. What this tells us, and this has been Plantinga's point, is that you can't dismiss the rationality of belief in God or the great pumpkin if he is said to do these things, without first dismissing the truth of the belief by declaring that in fact God does not exist or does not do these things so that belief in him can be properly basic. So you have to say, no, God doesn't exist or God doesn't do these things. That's the claim you have to make in order to reject the claim that belief in God is properly basic. So there's no problem in introducing the great pumpkin as another example. Sure, if the great pumpkin exists and does these things, then belief in him would be properly basic too. That's not that's not strange. It's not an objection. I remember during a postgraduate seminar at university, this came up. I described Plantinga's account, and a very confident atheist in the back of the room shot back, oh yeah, well I believe in the cosmic giraffe. He exists and communicated his existence to me via direct experience so I'm just as warranted in holding this belief and calling it basic as you are yours. Now, this was obviously just a relabeled version of the Great Pumpkin Objection. Now, sure, if it's true that there is a cosmic giraffe, and if this guy was telling the truth about how the said giraffe communicated his existence to him, then his belief would be warranted in basic. And so what? <laughs> that's, that's not an important objection. It's not an objection at all. It was pretty obvious to everyone in the room that he was just lying. I mean, he was just making it up. It wasn't really true. But if it had been true, then yeah, okay, he's got a, a basic belief in the cosmic giraffe. That, that's, that's interesting, kind of, but trivial. It doesn't really make any difference here. Atheist author Keith Parsons, I think, badly misunderstands these issues, issues when he attempted to address the way that the Reformed epistemologist can easily dispatch the Great Pumpkin Objection. He notes that if theism of this sort is true, then it's probably basic. Okay, planting a note of that as well. Um, instead of saying properly basic, he says warrant basic. Don't get confused by that. It's the same idea. Now, it logically follows from this that if theism of this sort isn't basic, then it's not true. Because if it's true, then it will be basic. So if it's not basic, then it can't be true. Okay although some other kind of 
theism might be true, but let's ignore that for now. Let's just call this theism. Listen to how he comments on this in the Cambridge Companion to Atheism. He said, The atheist can stand planting his argument on its head and argue that the fact that theistic belief is not warrant basic shows that there probably is no God. End quote. Well, here's the thing. Yes, it's true. Showing that this sort of theism is not basic is to show that it's not true. But in order to show that it's not basic, as Plaintinger has explained, you have to show that it's not true. Because if it's true, then it will be basic. In other words, theism is only non-basic if it's false. In practical terms, this means that showing that theism is not basic is going to require you to show that the factors that would cause it to be a basic belief just aren't there. You have to argue God's not real or God didn't create us in such a way that we function properly by believing in him, for example. Unless you can successfully argue for such propositions as these, then you can't establish that belief in God isn't basic. Parsons missed that, but that's that's really the heart of Plantinga's point. That's what he's getting at. Now, Parsons evidently disagrees. He says, and I quote, When it comes to arguments questioning the rationality of theism, Marx and Freud are now the least of theists' worries. A number of recent works offering challenging naturalistic accounts of religious belief in terms of neuroscience, anthropology, and evolutionary theory See, for example, Guthrie from 1993, Alper 2001, Boyer 2001, Wilson 2002, Broom 2003. These are various authors who make these arguments. If the argument of these authors are cogent, and Plantinger gives no reason why they cannot be, then there is excellent reason to doubt that theistic belief is warrant basic, for such belief will have natural non-rational causes and not be caused by the proper functioning of a cognitive faculty designed to produce true beliefs. End quote. Now look at the way that this line of reasoning works. Plantinger has offered an account which, if true, would make theism properly basic. Parsons says that some other people have offered an account of theism which, if true, would make theism not properly basic. Therefore, we should doubt that theism is properly basic, and hence we should doubt that it's true. Now, who on earth would accept an argument like this? I mean, evidently some people do, but why? The fact that there exist ways of describing theism that do not describe it as basic is simply irrelevant. If theism is true, then Plantinga's account of theism making it properly basic, is much more likely to be true than the naturalistic accounts referred to by Parsons. What's more, even if plenty of people do accept theism solely because of the causes that Parsons alludes to, like anthropology or neuroscience, if there are causes therein that give rise to theism for many people, then very little actually follows. It's kind of trivial and unimportant. At very best... It shows that not everyone who accepts theism holds it as a properly basic belief. But there's nothing here to show that planting his account of theism being properly basic is false. Nothing at all. So there we have it. There we have it, I think. There's more discussion to be had about properly basic beliefs and about theism as a properly basic belief. But now, hopefully, in what I, what I think is a pretty succinct 
presentation, you have a good initial understanding of what a properly basic belief is, how Christian theism, if true, can be a properly basic belief, and why the major objection to this line of thought is not very well thought out. I have looked at this objection, the the Great Pumpkin objection, spelled out by numerous people, and I continue to think that it's just a trivially silly objection. There is a wealth of literature on the issues raised here. If I have whet your appetite and you want to look further, not least of which, uh, you know, literature not least of which is written by Alvin Plantinga himself. And if you want to get a really good grip on his position and the way that he interacts with a whole variety of objections to various parts of what he has to say, then there are a bunch of good articles written by him that are available online. Uh, articles like Reason and Belief in God, Is Belief in God Properly Basic or Rationality and Belief in God? But if you really want to go the whole nine yards, and have a, then have a read through his trilogy of books. There's three books on Warrant. Uh, that trilogy consists of Warrant, The Current Debate, Warrant and Proper Function, and Warranted Christian Belief, which is by far the largest of the three books. I know that we haven't heard the last of Plantinga on philosophy of religion and epistemology in spite of his retirement. Uh, I know, for example, that he's speaking at the Evangelical Philosophical Society's conference later this year, and no doubt his publication output will continue, hopefully. I wish it would never end, actually. But just as all good things, like Plantinga's career at Notre Dame, must eventually come to an end, so too this episode draws to a close. For those who don't check out the blog regularly, shame on you, you're going to hell. I, I kid. Really, you're, I don't mean that. Um, if if you don't check out the blog regularly, and you might not have heard this, I'm off to Oxford in August to speak at the conference of the European Society of the Philosophy of Religion, as is Nicholas Walterstorff. So, you know, mention those two names together. Glenn Peoples and Nick Walterstorff speaking at Oxford. Sounds good. And if you'd like to be a part of helping me get there, uh, I certainly don't have departmental funding or anything like that, since I don't actually work in a department, I certainly won't stand in your way. Head over to the blog at www.beretta-online.com. Drop me a line. Um, Yeah, that'd be great. Now, I'm often really encouraged by the comments that I get via the contact page at the site, so please feel free to get in touch with me with any comments or suggestions about the podcast, the blog, or life in general, I guess. I mean, I'm not desperate for for attention or company, but if you've got anything you'd like to say to me, please get in touch. In the meantime, however, this is Glenn Peoples signing off again. Do come back next time for what will, I promise, be another riveting episode of... Say hello to my little friend!